This is Vanderbilt Business, a podcast about the students, faculty, and staff at Vanderbilt's own Graduate School of Management. Through our stories, we hope to give listeners a better picture of the people who shape our community here in Nashville and the world around us. Recent research by Steve Posebeck, E. Bronson Ingram Professor of Marketing at Owen, finds that individuals with relatively elevated symptoms of adult separation anxiety disorder, also known as ASAD, are more favorable to ads featuring concepts of home suggesting a vulnerability that goes beyond the appeal of a product itself. These findings may represent an opportunity for marketers, but also reflect a threat for sufferers of ASAD. Steve is also the faculty director for Vanderbilt's Master of Marketing, or MMARC program, which just welcomed its second class to Owen. This week, we talk with Steve about his latest research, as well as the first year of MMARC and where the program is headed in year two and beyond. So I'm here with Steve Posovac today. Steve, thank you so much for sitting down for this interview. Really appreciate it. Great to be here, Nate. <laughs> so let's get right into it. Starting with your educational background, it's strongly rooted in social psychology. And looking through your CV, it seems that many of your research interests intersect with psychology. How has this shaped your research throughout the years? I focused a lot as a graduate student on the concept of attitudes, so people's preferences for stuff, where their preferences come from, how can that be changed? and Really, that's just the, the cornerstone of, of social psychology and just a critical construct for marketers. If you can measure consumers' attitudes, you can predict what they're going to do. If you can measure attitudes, you can assess your marketing efforts. Are you, are you successful in changing people's opinions? And if you can change attitudes, you can change behavior. And that's a lot of what we try to do in marketing. So on the research side, a lot of what I do, even though I've done research in a lot of different areas, a lot of it comes down to preferences and, and persuasion. So your latest study finds that consumers with elevated symptoms of adult separation anxiety disorder, also known as ASAD, uh, are more vulnerable to advertisements with home themes. Can you walk me through this study? Absolutely. The uh, idea of of adult separation anxiety disorder is uh, really a new concern that psychiatrists and clinical psychologists have only been talking about for about 20 years. The uh, nature of the disorder is you have elevated fear if you either are or are worried about being separated from individuals that you're close to or attached to or being away from home. It's a a pernicious disorder. If if you look at folks who are in psychotherapy for anxiety, about one in five have elements of adult separation anxiety disorder. A number of things go along with that. They're more likely to be depressed. They're more likely to have panic attacks. They're more likely to generally experience symptoms of neuroticism, which just means feeling negatively about things, not feeling stressed well, and so forth. So part of what this research was about was understanding this disorder and look if you've got adult separation anxiety disorder are you susceptible to certain types of persuasion anybody who's got anxiety one of the motivations that you always are feeling is how to reduce that anxiety so if you have someone who's anxious in social situations a lot of times they will use substances ahead of time so that they can moderate how anxious they feel. Sometimes anxiety, you respond to it in an adaptive way. If you're worried about an upcoming exam and you study a little bit more, that's adaptive. Sometimes, though, uh, responses are less adaptive. For folks who have adult separation anxiety disorder, what is a constant motivation for them is reducing the distance between themselves and home, whether it's those they're attached to or whether it's, it's actually home itself. So what we thought in this study was, if you have an advertisement that makes an appeal towards coming home, it would be particularly compelling to folks with adult separation anxiety disorder because this is sort of on their mind a lot anyway. So in this study, we recruited uh, over 200 participants to be in the research. This is a non-clinical sample, so these are not folks who've been diagnosed with any disorder, just folks out um, in the population. We measured, using instruments, their level of adult separation anxiety 
disorder, and then exposed them to one of two versions of a hypothetical internet ad for an airline. In, in both cases, the ad featured a woman in an airplane looking out the window. In one condition, text read, coming home, the best feeling in the world. In another condition, the text was, seeing new things, the best feeling in the world. So the only difference is, are we making a home appeal or not? Um, then we assess attitudes towards the advertisement. And what you see is that for folks who don't have elevated symptoms of adult separation anxiety disorder, there's no difference in what type of appeal the ad makes. They're equally favorable to both types of advertising. For folks who had elevated adult separation anxiety disorder symptomology, these folks found the ad that talked about coming home to be very persuasive. They found it to be very compelling. Upshot of this research, sort of different if you're a marketer or if you're worried about consumer welfare. For a marketer, you're successful when you make appeals at targeted segments of consumers. And we spend a lot of time as marketers trying to identify who those segments of consumers are who are particularly likely to buy our stuff or be responsive to our marketing. Especially with big data, we can identify narrower and narrower segments of consumers um, and create pitches aimed at people sort of in their soft spots that, that can get them to purchase. So from the marketing perspective, if you're appealing to folks who have elevated symptoms of adult separation, anxiety disorder, the straightforward implication is create advertising that has home themes in it. And advertisers use home themes quite a bit. This advertising would be very compelling to these folks. We can learn who they are uh, with analytics, also where they're getting their information, and, and, and you can advertise uh, to these folks in a way that they're going to find to be compelling. The consumer welfare story is, is different from that perspective. If you're a consumer and you're responding to an ad on features besides the product itself, the question is, is this in this individual's best interest? You have someone who's got a soft spot because of their enduring issues with anxiety. If they f see an ad that helps relieve this anxiety or they're, they're attracted to the ad because it speaks to the, the, what would help them feel better, is this a good thing? So in the paper we also talk about from the perspective of clinical psychologists, if you have a patient who has clinically diagnosed adult separation anxiety disorder, it might be a useful thing to work with this individual and help them understand their own susceptibility to persuasion. In our study, we had people who, it's a non-clinical sample, so these are folks who are, who are not in treatment per se. If you have someone who's in treatment with adult separation anxiety disorder, they're going to even be more susceptible than the folks in our study. So helping them understand their own potential weakness or how they might be overly influenced by marketing might be in, in these individuals' best interests. So how large do you think this segment, this segment is? This is actually, for me, reading the study the first time I'd ever even heard about the disorder. I can imagine, and, and yeah, I think you mentioned that 6% or so of the population has been diagnosed. Yeah, if you look at lifetime incidents, so across the lifespan, what percentage of people are going to have this? And between 6 and 7% um, are going to have this experience symptoms like this at one point or another. Some will be more chronic, others will be uh, more passing. But you don't have to have clinically um, diagnosable levels of adult separation anxiety disorder to be susceptible to home-themed ads, though. Even just some elevations on this, this is what's on your mind, you're likely to be more susceptible. Okay, because I was going to say the impact then would probably be pretty large. There's a large subset of the working population that spends a lot of hours in the office or a lot of hours on the road. Absolutely. And if you look at the segments that marketers consider, if, if you can be efficient in your marketing with a, a segment, even if it's a very small segment, that efficiency is a lot of money. So marketers, uh, one target segment that's been identified as sort of in some ways a, a crass term, but call people hypochondriacs, these are the consumers who are very likely to respond to advertisements 
for medical products, whether it's over-the-counter stuff or direct-to-consumer advertising. Not a huge percentage, but if you can reach these people with advertising for medical products or drugs, you're likely to convert a lot of them and be, be very efficient in your marketing efforts. So you touched on this before. What can consumers that suffer from these symptoms or think they might suffer from them do to shield themselves from undue manipulation? I think if you know yourself. Now, we all walk around with a set of uh, personality traits, a set of experiences that we have. All of us find some things more compelling than others. If you understand what it is that makes you tick and when you're, when you're likely to be overly influenced, you can just guard against it. Um, it's going to be very hard for an individual to recognize this in him or herself. These are, when we're persuaded, a lot of times this happens below the level of explicit consciousness, which is why in the paper we talk about for folks who've been diagnosed clinically with this disorder, it would really be up to the clinician to help this person develop insight. A lot of psychotherapy is about developing insight into yourself, how you react to things, how to be more functional and adaptive in the future. It's a lot of our paper is really targeted at, at clinicians as just something to think about if you have patients diagnosed uh, with this disorder. Of course, if anybody is feeling symptoms of anxiety or depression and they feel it's interfering with their enjoyment of life or their ability to perform, it's a good idea to go get, uh, go get some help. So advertisers have been using the homecoming narratives for a long time to tug at consumers' heartstrings and boost sales of particular products. Do you think that advertisers will rethink their messaging strategies uh, once they look at research like this show that shows that they could be you know, potentially manipulative with their messaging? Well, it's an interesting question because will, will they change their behavior because they're being manipulated? The, the way that an advertiser might change their behavior is take advantage of an effect like this. And you find that there's a segment of consumers who would be really responsive to home-themed advertising. Well, you just ramp that up and use that technique more. In general, in, business and specifically in marketing we just we talk about a host of ethical issues and one of them specific to marketing is targeting too vulnerable consumers. We worry a lot about for example advertising to kids because they're they're more susceptible to being persuaded kind of more than they should be. Marketing is all about persuasion anyway. That's okay. Everybody understands that. But if you have um, a consumer segment that is vulnerable to being persuaded more than they should be by an advertisement this is where this starts to dance up against ethical uh, boundaries. So it's, it's, it's definitely a discussion that um, is worth having. So studies like these, that, like you were just saying, have very different, different consequences for marketers and consumers. So when you set out to explore the effects of advertising on different populations, are you doing it from uh, the perspective of a marketer or a consumer or both? I like to touch on, on both topics. Uh, one of the influences in my life has been publishing papers with my wife. She's a licensed psychologist. So a lot of times I'll, I'll come at it from a marketing perspective. She comes at to the stuff from a clinical psychology perspective. And a number of my papers over the years have spoken to both, done research on how advertising can affect women harmfully. So we have this uh, idealized image of female attractiveness in the media. So we've researched how this affects women in terms of their own experience of weight concern, subsequent tendency to develop eating disorders, and so forth. So on the one hand, you have advertisers creating advertising that they think is going to move product uh, maximally, and it might do that. At the same time, we also have to think about how this affects consumers. So from my perspective, I think it's important both to understand how to persuade well. Ethical persuasion is a very important thing in society. If people learn about products and services that meet their needs well, their lives are better. Uh, and this enhances both the consumer and business as well. And so studying ethical persuasion is, is a fantastic thing to do. At the same time, being realistic, 
about sometimes there are harmful consequences for consumers of marketing it, it is, is also important. Uh, it's the right thing to investigate that as well. So I kind of walk in both worlds. This, this paper on uh, adult separation anxiety disorder is a great example of that, looking at how you can be more efficient as a marketer, but at the same time, what does it mean for consumer welfare? Talking about those particular groups that people might target, for people listening to this podcast, are there any particular groups or subgroups of consumers that you think might be more likely to suffer from some level of ASAD symptoms? If you look at the statistics, women are slightly more likely than men uh, to have this. At the same time, this is a, a set of symptoms and experiences that can affect anybody. And just because you might not be part of the group that is most likely to experience this doesn't make, doesn't make one immune to it at all. So that's uh, not a question we look at very hard in our research. There are some, some subgroups that may be more likely to experience it than others over the course of their lives. But everybody can experience these symptoms of anxiety at some time. So switching gears, you're the faculty director for our Master of Marketing program, which just graduated its first class this year. Why did Vanderbilt opt to create this particular program? I was part of a, a task force a few years back, I chaired the portfolio task force as part of the strategic plan development for the school. What we looked at is what our current offering of programs was, what the ideal size of our current programs uh, would be, and then also what, where opportunities would lie going forward. Looking first at the MBA program, kind of their conclusion was that the MBA is about the right size where it is now. We want to keep it relatively small, we want to keep it prestigious and selective, so there's really not a lot of growth opportunities there felt that growing the school could have a number of benefits, and so we looked at opportunities for growth. One-year master's programs emerged as a real possibility for growth because you have a confluence of just demand among consumers and industry, and then also specific to us, we wanted to be a little bit bigger uh, as a business school. From the perspective of employers, employers hire, hiring an MBA student, what they want is someone who can walk in day one, understand the full scope of management, managed teams, and, and so on. There's also a need, though, that businesses have for folks who are specialists, entry-level positions in marketing. What we felt was that we could create a product of, of really well-trained folks who had broad training in marketing, but also deep because they're only focusing on uh, marketing toolbox, marketing strategy, and so forth, and create a, a, just a product of students that would just be able to dominate that entry-level marketing uh, position. From the perspective of students, there's folks who have a different mentality than MBA students. MBA students, you finish your undergraduate degree, you work for four years, you come back, pursue a general management degree because that's your career aspirations. Other folks are coming out of their undergraduate training and feel like they need to either learn new skills or get better at some basic skills that they have in order to succeed and do really well in entry-level positions, and they know they want to be marketers. They're not looking to be managers out of the gate, they want to be marketers. So it's sort of a, a different focus among who wants to be an MBA student versus a, a one-year master marketing student. Uh, but it's demand both among industry and prospective students is really where we saw uh, the opportunity here. This allows us then to grow. Having a new program like this allows us to grow, which has myriad benefits. One of the things that we can do if we're larger is we can offer more sections of classes. Uh, we can offer more classes. We can expand the faculty. And so this benefits the entire school. Helps MBA students, helps the students who are pursuing the one-year degree, and overall just being bigger as a business school has advantages as well. And what kind of curriculum can a Master's of Marketing or MMARC students anticipate when they come into the program? What we do is we start with a three-week term prior to when everybody else starts school. We teach them their core marketing class in those three weeks. 
and a host of other units to help them very quickly go from being an undergraduate with limited or no work experience to being able to be a professional in 10 months. So we give them a unit on marketing ethics. We have executives come and talk about professional demeanor, how to be at work uh, to be successful. We give them the background they need so they can talk to folks in finance and accounting and operations and so forth, so they, they understand some of the, the terminology. After that first three weeks, then they take classes with the rest of the school, with MBA students and uh, so on. Basically what they do is they take almost all of our marketing classes. So they, they take classes that, that focus on social media and advertising. We have a very strong analytics unit. And by the time they're done, they will have experience to be able to make solid decisions uh, in analyst roles, so the, the, one of the, our, our core uh, foci, whether it be focusing specifically on social media, whether it's on analytics, or just as a generalist uh, marketer, they're really ready in, in 10 months to go from sort of starting to being able to dominate that, that entry-level position. What sort of roles are you seeing students step into now after the first graduating class? What's interesting is that they've taken jobs in a variety of different types of industries. We have mentioned earlier the, the analyst role is one of our, in our wheelhouse. So we folks in marketing analyst or business analyst or analytics analyst uh, positions, taking jobs at big companies, uh, Mars Pet Care, we've had one go to Disney, another one go to Coca-Cola. We've also had folks go into more targeted marketing positions and sales account manager type of roles or social media manager roles for smaller companies like House or uh, Mojo Media Pros, for example. Um, so they're, they're, what we're seeing is it's, it's entry-level positions, a lot more analyst positions, but then also some, uh, one of the real upsides of our students is they can come in and do really well in analytics, do well in social media, and just add value from day one. Are you anticipating any changes from year one to year two, or even going forward beyond that? What we're really trying to do in the second year versus the first year is we want to boost a lot internet analytics in our curriculum. We have a couple directed studies where students are able to pursue whatever interests they felt would both most help their career. So we had a number of students uh, really focus on doing internships and then social media metrics, for example. Uh, that We feel like that's such an important part of what these graduates ought to be able to do that the really the only curricular change we made was had a one-credit internet marketing class, boosted that to two credits, and we're going to have that be much more heavily analytics-focused. And that's a course that's open to everybody. So it's, this is going to be good for the MBAs as well as the MRCs that we're uh, adding this into the curriculum. Sounds wonderful. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate it, and good luck with the upcoming school year. Great. Great to talk. Thanks to Steve for his time this week, and thank you for listening. You can find more stories and information about Owen by visiting our website, business.vanderbilt.edu, or following at Vanderbilt Owen on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Vanderbilt University or the Vanderbilt Owen Graduate School of Management. Music is provided by Mike Foster. I'm Nate Luce.